Okay, you remember that in this series, unlike others, I actually started by telling you kind of where we were going. I didn't wait to sum up like in some series where we go through a lot of stuff and then in the last week we sum up. I actually started by summing up. And then each week we worked through a little bit of that summation to get to where we are right now. When we started in week one, all the way back, talking about stigma and silence, we then looked at tolerance and the intolerance of tolerance, as D.A. Carson writes in his book. Morgan talked to us about what's wrong with keeping silent, to take on really the, the kind of the big question in the room, like, so what? Is there anything wrong with being silenced as Christians? And we talked, not just here, but on Wednesday nights, we've talked extensively about how our faith doesn't work if we keep it to ourselves. In fact, We're commanded by Jesus to do exactly the opposite, but our faith is one that needs to be communicated not just with actions, but it does require words. And then we ask that question, isn't persecution good for the church? And while we agreed that persecution has seen the church explode in many places, we really questioned whether this was the type of persecution, self-censorship, being ashamed of the gospel, whether that type of quote-unquote persecution would see the church explode or just be extinguished in many places, like in Europe. We at least ask those questions and go back to that night, because I think that was a unique take on this subject. Finally, we get to tonight. How should we live? We started to address that at the end of our fourth week when we looked at the book of Daniel, and we looked at how the captives had lived in Babylon and later in Persia under occupation, and we tried to draw some similarities to where we might be headed. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a moment. That's where we are now. A couple of weeks ago, I also told you about this story that I had seen in the news. You might remember the headline that caught my attention. It was Tim Tebow to speak at anti-gay, anti-Semitic church. That was the headline, and it caught my attention. Because anytime you throw the word anti-Semitic around, that's a bomb. You know, that's like throwing acid on somebody in a conversation. You cannot have a conversation if you use such loaded words as anti-gay, anti-Semitic in a a headline. So, of course, it drew my attention, like, what's he doing now? And he was going to speak at the First Baptist Church of Dallas, where Robert Jeffress is the pastor. Robert Jeffress is kind of a controversial figure. He's definitely a conservative Christian in the right wing, was a big supporter of Rick Perry, has done some crazy things like call... He hasn't called Obama the Antichrist, but he said that electing Obama will lead eventually to the rise of the Antichrist. So we might point fingers and think, we don't believe in everything this guy says. Here's the interesting thing. I had told you that as this article was published, here's what some people had to say, just commenting on the article. Comments that I thought were interesting were people trying to push back against the stigma that was trying to be created. One of it said, the bigots and haters of free speech are coming out of the woodwork. Can't wait to hear officially from the liberals, the progressives, the NAACP, and the Rainbow Coalition. Their comments ought to be laced with peace and understanding, but they won't. They'll detract anyone who opposes them. Somebody else wrote in sarcasm, Oh, the horror, the shame. I can't believe that he would speak at such a place. How dare anyone have an opinion that the liberal media doesn't agree with? Let's show them to the wolves right now. Who cares about freedom of speech? I have a great idea. We should do away with the First and Second Amendment at the same time. Insert sarcasm was the comment in parentheses. Here's another one. 
Just because this pastor denounced all non-Christian religions doesn't make him anti-Semitic. He says, I'm Jewish, and I read what the pastor said, and I'm not offended in the slightest. As far as the gay thing goes, the Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sin. Not exactly breaking news. So when I read this, I had a little bit of hope. I thought, wow, some people are actually standing up to some of this stigma where somebody would write a kind of really heavy-weighted article with this title, and somehow people would push back and say, hey, he has the freedom to do what he wants. Well, if any of you know the rest of the story, a few days later, because of this pressure, he canceled the appearance and decided to pull out of going to a church, which led to a really interesting conversation among Christians. First of all, why is Tim Tebow so big in the first place? Nobody knows. <laughs> That's the most interesting part of the conversation. Yeah. But what's even more interesting is, if you can stigmatize a Christian who likely believes many of these same things anyway, from attending a church, uh, what is that leading to? What I'd like you to do right now is I'd like you to watch Robert Jeffress's response from his church. It's going to take a few minutes to watch, about 10 minutes long. I want to tell you a couple things first. I'm not endorsing this church or this video. Uh, I don't know enough about Robert Jeffress to say anything. I mean, he's called a controversial pastor, but from everything I've read about him, he seems like he's just taken most of it out of the Bible. I might not agree with every interpretation he has or every theology he has, but I do agree that we're getting to a point where you can't say anything anymore. Listen to his response, and then let's talk about it. do that to me before I get started. (laughs) Thank you, choir and orchestra, Nathan, for your music this morning. Teenagers, it's great to have you in our service as well. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before. That is, the week you planned to have last Monday doesn't turn out to be the week you actually have by the time it gets to Saturday. Has that ever happened to you before? Well, it did for me. This has been a wild week. It really has been, but it's been a great week. It has been a tremendous week. I have seen the hand of God in so many different ways I can't begin to tell you. And you know, uh, I've been preaching the last two months about the new beginning that we're going to experience as a church, and along the way we might have an obstacle or two that we would find (laughs) along the way. Little did I know how true it was what I was talking about. But I want to assure you today, God is still on his throne. And I want to assure you, this is not going to diminish one bit the excitement we have in going into our new campus that God has planned for us. Somebody asked me, a reporter this week said, how is your church reacting to all of this? I mean, how are they holding up? I said, oh, listen, I pastored the greatest congregation in all the world. They are spiritually mature men and women of faith. And they understand all this controversy. It's not about me. It's not even about our church. 
It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it is an amazing thing to me that a church is called anti-Semitic simply because we preach that everyone, Jew, Baptist, Catholic, Hindu, atheist, everyone must trust in Christ in order to go to heaven. It's amazing to me that we're called anti-gay simply because we say sex ought to be between a man and a woman in marriage. Somehow that's construed to be anti-gay. Somebody pointed me to a column yesterday in the Huffington Post. Now, the Huffington Post is hardly a bastion of conservative thought. But even the Huffington Post, if you can believe this, the Huffington Post said what they are teaching and preaching at First Baptist Dallas is in the mainstream of conservative Christian thought. It's not that what they're teaching is radical. What is radical is the culture has changed. That is what has happened. It's not that what they're preaching is different than what Christians have believed historically for 2,000 years, especially conservative Christians. But you know, what others, and I believe even Satan, intended for evil, God intended for good. I, um, I've been, I'm kind of been violating my own rules the last week, and I've been reading all of these articles and blogs. I couldn't read all of them. There are hundreds of them, but I've read some of them. And really, I never realized what an awful person I was until I started reading these articles about myself. But one of the charges made uh, by one person in the column was, well, that Jeffers, he just loves controversy. He just loves controversy. Well, I don't love controversy, but I love the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as possible. And it's been amazing this week, the opportunities God has opened up to share the gospel with a secular audience everywhere from CNN to TMZ. And uh, I've ended up uh, getting to be on sports programs all across the nation. I didn't know there were so many sports channels and networks around the country. I'm thinking about getting a part-time job as a color court, uh, commentator on these sports networks. They've had me and they've given me a great chance to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what all of this is about. It's about sharing the gospel. And there's so many people So many people I would want to thank. I could take the rest of the sermon to do so. First of all, you need to know, because you only hear the negative stuff by and large. You need to know the positive things that are happening. This week, we have been flooded with hundreds, if not thousands, of telephone calls and emails here at the church from people all over the country saying, we're standing with you. Uh, uh, We had a couple of people from New York who called and said, we're sending a contribution to your church because of what you all are doing A Hispanic pastor called Friday and he said, you know, I was planning to come and bring my entire congregation to your new church on April 28th to hear that speaker you all were going to have. But please tell Pastor Jeffers that I'm still coming and bringing my congregation to support him and the members of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. And I also want to thank the tremendous friends, Christian leaders we have across the country who love our church and who have been vocal and public about their support. I think about my good friend Jack Graham, pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church, and O.S. Hawkins, and Jerry Vines, and Dave Welch, and the Texas Pastors Coalition, all of whom have gone on the record as supporting us. And Dr. Al Moeller, who has written a brilliant piece about all of this in this week's Christianity Today, and Jim Dennison, 
And I think about uh, broadcasters uh, who've had me on their program and voiced their support for our church this week, Mike Huckabee and Mike Gallagher and Todd Starnes at Fox News and uh, Tim Wildman from the American Family Association. And then some of the great seasoned Christian leaders who have been vocal and have voiced their support. And Dr. David Jeremiah from Turning Point, who's going to be here April 7th to dedicate our new facility. He called me Friday evening. He said, Robert, you know, I've never gone out looking for a fight, but I'm not going to run away from one either. And then Dr. James Dobson, my goodness, nobody has stood for the faith like James Dobson and taken the arrows for doing so. He talked to me Friday evening. He said, you know what, Robert? If these critics are going to get to you, they're going to have to come through me first to get to you. And he said, I want you to deliver a message to the people of First Baptist Church Dallas. And that is on Sunday, April 21st, I'm going to be there to stand with you and stand with my friends at the First Baptist Church of Dallas. You know, I am grateful. I am grateful for men of God like these who are willing to stand up and act like men rather than wimping out when it gets a little controversial and an inconvenient thing to stand for the truth. God bless men like that. Now, there are some people who would say, well, God's given me a different ministry. God has called me to go out and preach about the love of God. That's what I'm called to do. I'm not called to preach about sin and talk about controversial things. I've been called to talk about the love of God. And they're sincere when they say that. But they are sincerely wrong. The fact is, you cannot talk about the love of God. The love of God has no meaning whatsoever unless you understand the judgment of God that all of us deserve. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as the good news. That's what the word gospel means. There's no such thing as good news unless you understand the bad news as well. And the bad news is there is such a thing called sin. And the Bible says we are all guilty of it. And we are all headed for an eternity of separation from God. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is it doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. It doesn't matter whether you are a Jew, a Baptist, a Catholic, a Muslim, a Hindu, a homosexual, an adulterer, a thief, or a cheat. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can be forgiven of your sins if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's not a message of hate. It's a message of hope. It is a message of hope. A reporter asked me this week, he said, how is all of this, all of this hatred that has been directed toward you and your church, how is it affecting you personally? Has it made you decide you better change and better, maybe better tone it down a little bit? How has it affected you personally? I want to tell you exactly how it's affected me. I had a little revival and recommitment in my life this week. And I recommitted to God and to this congregation that as long as I am the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, 
We are not going to kneel before the altar of political correctness and convenience. We're going to stand up and boldly proclaim the grace of God and the truth of God without compromise. So help me, God. That is my commitment. Thank you, church, for standing with us. Thank you for standing with us, church. God bless you. Every one of you, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for standing with us. All right, what do you think? Let's get some reactions to how you feel he felt like he had to respond uh, to all this controversy just because uh, somebody pulled out. Any thoughts? That was quite the slap he took at Devo. That's like cowering and whimpering that whatever. Yeah, if you missed the obvious reference, that part about talking about some people just think they have a ministry of talking about love, that was actually one of Tim Tebow's responses was, I just feel like I want to spread God's love. Right? That's what I'm called to do. And, and in a way, I actually think that's kind of a cop-out. I kind of agree that if we think that you know, my job is just spread God's love, like, okay, so I'll just take the parts I like about the gospel, about Jesus, and I'll just do the parts that would be convenient to talk about. I don't want to get into any controversial stuff or make people feel uncomfortable. Wow, would we all take that? <laughs> That'd be great. Like, oh, let's all just take that ministry on. That's exactly what I think the stigma encourages us to do. Like, that is the easier way uh, to do it. All right, any other comments about this? Yeah. I think it's important to find a balance when you do it too, though, because you don't want to just preach fire and brimstone. Everybody's like, oh, yeah. It's like, start out your conversation. You know you're going to hell. You don't get to hear the good news until you know that. Sure, what I think is interesting, though, is they were inviting Tim to talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. You know, so, I mean, he was free to talk about what he was going to talk about. Maybe he would have even shown up and just talked about love. And this all would have just gone over. So I think, in a way, uh, him pulling out actually highlighted that difference, right? You heard him say, we're not going to bow down to the altar of political correctness. I mean, that really is a bold stance. He gets kind of excited there at the end as he's talking right into the camera, you know, making sure all the people in the overflow rooms can hear him, you know. Uh, no other comments on this? You guys okay with him? Yeah, right? I almost, I very much agree with the idea that the church should not be consistently trying to be politically correct by being quiet about things. Like, I think I am a little sad that that has to come from, I didn't like the, the polarizing of, like, I'm going to list all the people who are on my side. And yeah. It was very triumphant and very, like, I don't know, he, he seemed a little unwilling to have heard any of the criticism. Yeah, when you're citing, like, James Dobson as your big supporter, it's like, that's not helping the argument, right? <laughs> like, right? Now, maybe in their circles that is, but as, as he read the list of people he's citing to, I was like, you were really good at the beginning and you were really good at the end. That middle part kind of lost some of the argument. It lost some of its strength. Because the story is not really, like you said, about triumphalism. It's not really about uh, how we're going to stand no matter what, even though that was a very rousing speech there at the end. Um, it was really more this story. A football player who happens to be a Christian was going to come dedicate their brand new megachurch, and then he pulled out because people basically called that church names, and he didn't want the controversy. That's really what the story is. Yes. What did they base that on, though, in the first place? I mean, I mean, why were they calling him anti-Semitic, anti-Chaos? You heard him respond to it. That's why I said I can't endorse what he says or doesn't say, because I haven't read every sermon he's given or seen every video he's done. I will say that when he cites to the Huffington Post article, uh, it's written by 
oh, I can't even say his name. It's like Paul Brandeis Ruschenbach or something like that. He's the religion editor at the Huffington Post. And I did read his article, and I did look at uh, Dr. Mueller's article, who's in the Southern Baptist Convention, and it is true. He didn't misquote them. They both kind of say, like, his views on balance, so there are two people that are watching, one from a Christian perspective and one from a non-Christian perspective, that his views are mainstream within conservative Christianity. That doesn't mean that we would agree with every view he had, but he's not out there as some complete loon. I I was just wondering if there's something uh, specific, because uh, one Jewish person said, oh yeah, I read what they were talking about, and it didn't offend me, so I thought maybe there was a specific thing that did. Yeah, and the guy who's writing the Huffington Post article is Jewish as well, and he's kind of saying, look, this is what Christians believe. Now, of course, he kind of put a positive spin on it, Jeffress did, and the Huffington Post was saying, that just shows where conservative Christians are. They're way over here. But he's not weird. He's almost saying they're kind of all kind of weird, right? So, so he took another spin, which is he said, I'm right in the midst of conservative Christians. Yeah, but part of the article was to say, hey, let's not hit this guy. They're all kind of believe that, right? But I also think they did support him in a way saying, if that's what you believe, you can't shy away from saying what you believe. And that's really what brings us back into our series. That really is the central theme of our whole series, is we cannot shy away from what we believe, even in the face of how unpopular it is. Um, The person writing Christianity Today, Dr. Al Mohler, his article about Tim Tebow was Tebow's Big Fumble. That was the title of the article. That would imply that Tebow's going to see the ball again anytime soon, you know? But, But that's the interesting point, is like he's saying... What his article is basically saying is, okay, so what does this mean if you back away from this engagement? What do you believe? Who are you in this moment? Um, and it does bring up that question, are you ashamed to actually say what you believe? Okay, on Wednesday nights we've been having a discussion using Richard Niebuhr's five-fold typology, like about how do we see Christ versus culture. So you might know it involves Christ against culture or Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ transforming culture, or Christ and culture in paradox. We've been looking at those together in a little bit more intimate setting where we can talk about them and discuss them. But I would say that one of the issues with these is when we're asking people to pick one, it's a little bit too black and white. And the reason for that is because we're trying to pick one that applies, and everybody acknowledges it's more complicated than that. Uh, I'm going to actually encourage you to think more of kind of a spectrum approach. One where in our daily lives, we live out in the context of everyday life, and we're going to have different responses. We can't just pick one and live by it. Our different responses might be something like this. We might adopt some aspects of the culture. We might transform some aspects of the culture. And we might reject other aspects simultaneously, like all at the same time. Like one example that's given in one of the books I'm reading is, we don't have a Christian way to eat, do we? I mean, for example, if you go to other cultures, Christians will adopt the way that those cultures eat, right? Like if you're in Asia, you would eat with chopsticks, right? If you're in the U.S., you would eat with a fork. We would find it very, very offensive if we thought the only way Christians should eat is with a fork, right? I mean, how colonial would that be? So there are some places where it just doesn't matter. We can adopt some parts of the culture because it's okay. The funny thing for us in America is we adopt the wrong parts of the culture. We're really good at adopting things in the culture, but we adopt like it's consumerism, it's materialism, it's search for comfort, it's 
imposition of the American dream into some sort of a Christ-sanctioned prosperity. That's what we adopt. So we have to be careful when we're adopting parts of the culture. Let's adopt the right ones, the ones that really are neutral to what it is that we're trying to do, not the ones that actually change our faith entirely. There are other areas where we can transform some aspects of the culture. Let's take the one I just talked about, like take something like capitalism. You can reject it, but you know what? Capitalism could be very, very helpful. We just have to transform it. Look at the table in the back, for example, with all the things that are on it, right? It's being used to transform lives. It's not being used to amass great amounts of wealth and capital so that you can actually dominate certain aspects of society. Just the opposite. So there are some things that we could look and we could critique capitalism in the West. We could also transform it into a Christian expression that actually helps maybe even more than other forms. And, of course, there's going to be some things we reject in the culture. Like, there are going to be some things we just think, no, that's not here. You might hear that there's constant discussion about how porn is becoming more mainstream in our culture. I would think it's strange if any church decided that that should be mainstream in its church as well. That's probably gone too far. We need to actually stand and say, no, there are some things that we need to reject. Some people now are struggling with what do we do about drug laws as they're becoming legal. Does the church just say, well, it's legal, it's no longer against the law? Or do we continue to say, I don't know, even if two states or five states or ten states or all 50 states legalize certain drugs, should we just say, okay, that's fine, let's encourage it too? Or should we actually say, you know what, there are some parts of the culture, no matter what the rules are, we just have to continue to say no. And if you do, are you ready to be persecuted for that belief? If you stand against it, are you ready to stand different than everybody around you? Let's go back to the stigma one last time. I'm going to look at these comments that I made from the beginning of this series and address how we might respond practically. The first one I said was there's a growing pressure in society for Christians to remain silent and hide their faith. So practical tips for us. We cannot let stigma just go unchallenged. That's actually the reason I brought in Jeffress's response. I wanted you to see somebody who, whether I agree with all of his beliefs or not, doesn't matter. He stood up and said, I am not going to let this go unchallenged. I'm not going to let all these people just write whatever they want and not say anything in response. I think the statement that came closest to that was probably him saying, I'm not going to bow down before political correctness. Not water down the gospel from what it is. Okay, he's not the end-all, be-all example. What is it going to be in your life? If someone, for example, attempts to silence you or you feel the pressure to be silenced, what's your response going to be? Can it be something like, why is it that we can have free speech about every single thing except this thing? Yes. John, it's already happening. I had a, we had a speaker come to my leadership class last week and talk to us about our resumes and talk to us about interviewing at, here at APU who told us, now don't play up your faith in your interview. Like, don't talk about it. She told us, like, don't talk about it in your interview because you won't get a job. Can you tell me about the background of the person giving that advice? Who's, I mean, what's their background? Are they a person of faith or are they just... Yeah, they're, they're officially working. I mean, I assume so. They're a staff member, like a staff member here at APU. And I'm, I'm, I know that our faculty and staff have to sign a statement of faith that they are Christian. Students don't have to, but faculty and staff here have to profess a faith in Christianity. And she was telling us, like, 
don't tell people you're a Christian when you're interviewing and applying for jobs as a nurse. Like, don't don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Yeah, even in the job class I took recently, like when people were saying, "Oh yeah, I did volunteer time at the church," you know, can I put that on my resume? He's like, "Well." Why don't we call it a nonprofit organization and kind of move it around? And like he said, not to mention faith either. My response was that if I, I'm not getting hired because it says I did contribution at the church instead of a charitable organization, I probably don't want to work there anyway. Yeah, and I think we have to be wise about where we let that stigma go unchallenged or not. Like, for example, maybe in a job interview, you're not going to challenge the person in the interview, right? But I might challenge that person giving that advice, at least to ask, like, how is it that we came to the school and spent all this money and had this training uh, if we believe that we're supposed to leave here and zipper up our lips about anything dealing with faith? Uh, we've had this discussion on Wednesday nights about professionals, whether it's in psychology like Cormac shared or you've shared about nursing, I've shared in law, others have shared in their field, that there are some ethical prescriptions about when you can and cannot even speak about personal matters. But this isn't... We're not talking about that. We're not even talking about a patient at this point, right? We're talking just about the person giving you advice. I think that one of the things I'd like to say to you, if you don't hear much else I say tonight, is this stigma is being spread almost equally by Christians as it is by non-Christians. We are speaking to one another and telling everybody, shh, about your faith. Christians are doing that. Because we're so afraid of what's out there, that we want to somehow control the message internally, and I don't believe that's leading to anywhere good. Yes, it's true. People have opened up their big mouths in Christianity for long periods of time, and it's caused difficulties. But at the same time, if you're consistent with what is spoken in Scripture, you can't let that stigma silence you. We can't accept the, content, the, the idea that it's better for faith to be banished to some sort of private place. I'm saying that to you. I'm not saying that you can't let others accept it. I'm saying we can't accept it. Because I see this happening where more and more young Christians that I'm talking to are buying into the idea that maybe it's just better if we keep it to ourselves. Maybe it's just less controversy. Like it's not received well. So let's stop the friction. If you accept that, you've bought into the whole purpose it was started to begin with. Look at the next point. Some of us occasionally encounter this pressure. Many of us are unaware of just how far it's spread and how deeply ingrained it is in our culture. The reason for the first three weeks we were reading different case studies to you so that you could see this was not isolated or I wasn't paranoid. I mean, I was reading from a 140-page study, which if you want to know more about, you can download. It's free. All you have to do is Google this, Survey on Religious Hostility in America. It's put out by the Liberty Institute and the Family Research Council. Two groups that I don't usually go looking at their materials very much, but I will tell you, as an attorney, reading case sites, that's all they're doing is they're summarizing the cases fairly. I look at some of the cases, and they're fairly represented. So they've done a great service by doing this great work to show, like, this is an isolated incident. This is happening every day. You can't look at the religion reporting on Yahoo News or Huffington Post or anywhere else without seeing more and more of these cases coming out. They're, these guys are not going to be able to keep up in a couple of years. Their report now digests some of these cases. They're not going to be able to keep up. So we need to be aware of those efforts. Maybe as a, at a minimum, when you're reading news on the Internet, look for them. Just see how many times these cases are coming up. Just so that you can think, yep, I'm starting to see it. The second thing you could do is tell other believers about it. If you don't feel equipped, just know that this survey is out there and let people know about it. Right? Just kind of let people know about what we've talked about in this series. 
Or you can catch fellow believers when they're starting to think, maybe we should just keep things to ourselves, or maybe we really shouldn't have any kind of public voice in the arena. Maybe secularism really is neutral. and Everybody should just keep their faith in their corner, and that way we never conflict with one another. At least you should be able to recognize, hey, do you recognize that subtle thing that's going on right there? 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16, Paul is urging people to put on the mind of Christ rather than to make our own human judgments. Oftentimes, when I hear people succumbing to the idea that we should somehow just kind of remain quiet, if I were to say it bluntly, they've just borrowed the argument. It's not even their own thinking. We've just been stigmatized so much that we start to kind of buy it. Movie after movie, show after show, article after article, news story after news story, kind of puts us in a place where we start to just believe that's the better way to go. And I would say... Make sure when you're thinking through things that you really are thinking through with the mind of Christ. How would Christ think through this? How would he want the church to live out? Or are we just borrowing from what the culture tells us is supposed to happen? This might sound a little bit countercultural to you. I think it should be a little bit. I said this pressure is not accidental. They're naturally evolving. It is not something new. It's been carefully planned and has its roots going back over six decades. Our responses, we should really be wise. And this is going to be a little controversial. We should be wise about who it is or what it is that we support culturally and politically. And to what degree the byproduct of that support is greater hostility towards public faith. We've talked on Wednesday nights, and I've been thinking a lot about it. There are certain shows certain comedians, certain political actors uh, that I support that do not support my faith one bit. In fact, they would do everything they could to see it torn completely from the public square. Uh, I don't think often about how my support for viewing those people or watching their comedy or reading their articles or whatever it is they're doing or even voting for them. I don't often think about how that is going to impact my ability to practice my faith or even to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in this country. I don't think about it. What I think about is what does the other side say? I don't like those people. I'm voting these guys. I'm not thinking about the byproduct. And if we want to go into this deeper, which we won't right now, I would just encourage you to think that every show, every article, every political group has a whole agenda behind it as well of people who come out a certain way on things. They have biases and I would tell you, honestly, as I've been examining what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, I often have supported people who are no friends of my faith. Uh, I have actually watched shows repeatedly where commentators and comedians and everybody are just ripping into everything I believe, and I'm laughing right along with them. Most of the time because of some pride that's inside of me that's maybe saying, well, I'm not like that. It's all those other crazy guys in the faith, right? But the byproduct is the same. Uh, that we have less and less opportunity to express our faith publicly uh, without ridicule and without future, without persecution. And it's beginning because if you can make fun of somebody and you can do it, that's the beginning of stigma, right? You've been to a comedy show and you hear a comedian start to make fun of stuff and you realize, oh, that's me. You're learning subtly, don't do that again. That's what they're saying. Don't do those things. I'm actually supporting them. Yes? When you say supporting, you just mean like watching them and... One way, I mean, it's supporting it is I'm watching that show. I'm paying subscriptions to watch that, right? Or in, in one case, if I'm going to be blunt, voting for certain candidates brings along with those candidates a whole host of people that are opposed to our faith. 
right? And I'm not trying to tell you, vote one way or another. Actually, what I'm telling you is in confession, I voted for people who I thought, well, that's the right thing to do on so many issues. But the, one of the things that, that the byproduct is, is those people bring along with them a whole bunch of contingencies that oppose my faith and like to see it ripped out of the public square. So I might have a victory on some political issues that I'm really excited about, but at the same time, I'm not seeing that the fruit of that is a gradual decline in the ability of Christians to actually live out or speak about the gospel. It's hard to, because there's some shows that are like super funny, like all the rest of it, and then all of a sudden they start talking about your faith, and you're like, wow, this is sacrilegious. But the rest of the show like, is fine most of the, for you most of the time. So I mean, that's the hard part. Like, Are you going like, to not watch the whole show just because of those few times that they... I mean, that's what we should do, right? Look, I'm telling you that I'm... I'm not going to give you prescriptions on what you should do in that case. I know that Lena and I have had this conversation. Like, Lena and I have been watching certain shows and commentators and comedians where we think they're funny, we think they're dead on, we love it when they skewer certain people, you know, until they get to the faith. And then it's very clear that this isn't just, oh, I mean, it's like every chance they get to find a way to denigrate Christianity, they're back to it again. And the audience is clapping and everybody's laughing, and I'm thinking, oh, right? And I'm supporting this. What is that? Comment? I totally agree with everything that you're saying. But sometimes it can actually be helpful to sort of be able to be self-critical or kind of look at our culture, understand what looks funny or what's perceived or what is kind of a little off or what's more cultural than actually based on the Bible and how we might look to the quote-unquote world. I mean, I hate doing the us, them, but... I mean, sometimes it is funny. Yeah, we are kind of funny. We do do that. Yeah, that is a little ridiculous. Like, I get that. I totally agree with you. The question is, where's the line, right? Because a lot of times, that's my rationalization for why I'm watching it. And I, it's not even a rationalization. That was my reason for why I enjoy watching this, because I want to see where we are on the compass of how, we, how other people see us. And even when people poke fun at stuff, or a legitimate criticism is often sometimes very funny, and you go, that's true, that's right. Okay? Like one of those commentators recently said, look, if Christians... We're so excited about going to heaven. Why is it that they cling to try to extend life so much on earth? And they were commenting on a story where all these Christians were trying to live longer and do everything they could to not die, right? And he says, that just seems so strange to me. I thought, yes, that does seem strange. That's a great critique. Very good observation. We should take that to heart. That's not what I'm talking about, right? And I think that at times, that problem is the same person who made that really insightful thing that helps me realize where I am in relation to the world is actually, yeah, that's, that was the lighter of the comments that I thought was insightful. Most of them were just blatant efforts to discredit faith. Again, I haven't turned it off yet, so maybe I agree with you more than I should. Here's another one for us, though. Not just so that we point at the culture and start fighting some media war. We should look inward and backward and learn from ways that we've helped this. Look, there are so many places, if you look at the history of religious pluralism in this country, which I'm sure all of you have, um, if you look at the history of religious pluralism, we're partly, maybe even mostly, to blame for this. Christians, when they were in the majority, they persecuted so many different other minorities in their faith, I mean, uh, historically, that it led to some of the very same doctrines and court cases that are now being used to take Christianity out of the public square. We kind of started this fight at times. Uh, we kind of acted badly at times. So, again, not to jump on that same pile that everybody else is doing, I'm just saying we should, though, be looking inward and also at our own history and thinking, have we contributed this in somehow? And we should remain self-critical.
we should see that Protestant efforts, for example, to persecute Catholic beliefs was the beginning of how some of those same rules are now people thinking, yeah, maybe we should just not have any beliefs. If these people point the finger at those people and those people at some point you go, hey, maybe it would be better if nobody talked about their faith. That's how we get to ideas like that, as much as we have to resist them. Okay, last point I was making. But its greatest effects have yet to be felt this coming persecution. This pressure to take our faith underground will only increase during our lifetime. Uh, It's increased tremendously during my lifetime, faster than any of the historical backdrop would actually predict. So I expect it to actually ramp up even faster. Uh, It won't be too long before you see that, I believe. So what should we do to respond? Before I put these up, I want to tell you I'm totally cognizant of the fact that what I'm about to use is the word persecution, and this does not in any way equal the persecution of what Christians are going through around the world. But I think from our fourth discussion, we did agree that it was a form of persecution. So I want to use that word, even though, again, I don't believe that we are going to be tortured or put to death for this. Uh, I think just worse, we'll just be ashamed of the gospel. We should begin to prepare our hearts for the persecution that's beginning and that's to come. I think we have to actually know that it's here. Uh, some of us are going to feel the need to just go, eh, I don't know, doesn't really matter. I feel we'll be unprepared if that's the case. Scripture tells us we should work to rejoice in our suffering. Uh, we should actually see that it is a good thing to be persecuted for your faith. I don't know what that means in your job context, like Randy was alluding to, or Ray. If you actually rejoice in being persecuted to the point where you say, I'm not going to listen to that advice, I'm going to do what I think is right, even if it costs me and costs me dearly, then you'd be joining the ranks of those who are actually persecuted. Uh, and maybe it'll cost us more in the future. I think we should also keep in mind that our persecution and our suffering is for a time. That God's sovereign, that the church is growing in every other part of the non-Western world. You know, when I read books about the decline of the church, I think it's funny because they're talking about the decline of the church in North America. Uh, But if you've been watching what's going on around the world, the church is not declining there. Now, yes, there's problems when the church explodes under persecution. Yes, there's problems when the church explodes and the theology hasn't caught up. But you know what? The church is exploding. Uh, Just not here. And, uh, well, we're kind of sad sometimes, like, oh, the church seems to be in decline. Yeah, here. Uh, But you know what? It's it's doing great in other places. We should rejoice in that. Uh, We should hang on to what we have here. We shouldn't just accept what's happening here but we shouldn't be defeated by the fact that it seems like things are ending. Uh, Things are kind of on the downhill for North Americans. In Europe, it's already happened. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Again, I'm not trying to equate our persecution with the persecution of the martyrs. But if it is persecution, as you yourselves told me a couple of weeks ago, then I think you should be comforted by the words and also be challenged by them. You should know that this is something to actually live into, and not run away from. Jesus also reminds us as we read each time when we do communion, 
You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt must be distinct. Salt just can't just lie there. And if we're not distinct, we're no use to our culture. Most of us, church-wide, not just sitting in this room, we've bought in too much. So we're not salty. Jesus goes on, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A couple more verses. First Peter 4, the writer says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Read that last line one more time to make sure we understand it. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. I think we should live into that blessing as opposed to live worried and ashamed. Also from 1 Peter, the last verse I'll read, happens to be the theme of our entire group. It's been the theme that we are founded on, so I think it's fitting that we end our kind of our last substantive series with this verse. Because it talks about the same thing. 1 Peter 3, just jumping back a chapter, starting in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I believe that if we stay silent, we will only encourage a greater pressure for us to remain silent. I believe that it's not accidental that we're feeling that pressure. What that means, though, is that we can't just have no response. Because if it's not accidental that there's this pressure to silence us, we actually have to think clearly with the mind of Christ and do something together to be able to give the reason for the hope that you have. And at the same time, to be able to think clearly enough so that we can respond to people and say, why is it that I cannot express these things? Why is it? And if it leads us to a place where we have to sacrifice for the sake of being public with our faith to be light and to be salt, then these scriptures tell us, welcome it, because it's a blessing. The fact that I think it's hard for me to even say those words, that we should welcome difficulty, welcome sacrifice, welcome some sort of persecution, welcome some sort of suffering in our lives, 
tells me that in my own life I've grown too comfortable uh, having Jesus where I want him, even if the society doesn't. That if I have to take on those things to count them a blessing, that that's what we need to do. Otherwise, we see where it's going. You can look at Europe. They're a few years ahead of us. And you see that Christianity has all but disappeared from most of its public expressions, and I would say most of its private expressions. Let's not go there. Let's be willing to stand up and at least accept willingly this kind of sacrifice so that we can proclaim the gospel. I I just can't imagine any answer that says being silenced and ashamed of what it is we believe and of the gospel and of Christ himself results in anything good. And the verse that always comes back to me is like, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you. I don't know that we're denying him, but at the same time, I think we're ashamed enough or worried enough of the sacrifice that we would go underground. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless this series. Lord, long after we seal up these words, this pressure will continue to grow. I pray for your spirit to empower us, to embolden us, to give us the words to speak when we need to witness. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the strength to face that kind of subtle persecution that may grow over time. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us joy in the midst of all circumstances, including times when we do make a sacrifice, to bless us in times when we are not ashamed, when we are actually losing and sacrificing and being persecuted. That we would remember his words and that we remember his sacrifice for us, having given so much. How is it that we could remain silent when we have the very to eternal life given into our hands to tell others about. And when we know that what is to come is so much greater than anything we have in the present. Lord, I ask that you bless this series because it's going to go far beyond these walls. Lord, I pray that as it does that, that your word is not going to go forth and not return without accomplishing the purposes you want. May that purpose be, Lord, that others would be awakened so that we would start to stand together and stand for you, that we would never, never be ashamed of you or the gospel in any way, but would proclaim it in every act and word and deed in our life. I pray this in your name.